0: Have you been out birding? Outbirding with field guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go out birding with field guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com/aba. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Spring, for birders at least, means that we are putting ourselves in positions to intersect with birds. That is the nature of the birder. But maybe we don't need to try so hard. The last couple of weeks have been highlighted by a couple bird-human interactions in California that have gotten a little bit of media play that certainly highlight that perhaps not everyone is as excited about birds in their lives as we are. So it's time for a new segment that I'm calling Birds in, Birds, Birds in the News. Birds in the News. Birds in the News. Birds in the News. In late April, not one, but two homes in Southern California were invaded, their words, not mine, by hundreds of Voxes, Swifts. That's Voxes, not Vos, just in case you're wondering. Take it away.
1: An avian invasion over a home in Torrance it's so hard to explain and if you don't see it with your own eyes you'd never believe it. Carrie's family came home from dinner only to find starling Swift. swarming after swooping down their chimney. I put my hood on, put my mask on. I mean, they were just beating off my head. Blackbirds. Again, swift. Just flying everywhere. Now surrounded by hundreds of birds.
0: Sounds like one of those dream spring mornings, to be honest.
1: And feeling helpless of what to do. Our neighbors called 911. And the nightmare Nightmare. continues. The second night, I actually woke up to a bird flapping um, in my room. So I basically just pulled the covers over my head, started screaming. (laughs) Soot pouring out of the chimney.
0: I mean, that's really not the birds fault. Maybe take care of your flu
1: and you guessed it. Everywhere,
0: Okay, that is everywhere. You
1: couldn't walk in any spot in the living room, the kitchen and the hallway without stepping on bird droppings. While it's been a few days since the horror, horror. flew through, then this flashing before her eyes, seeing birds stuck in a Montecito chimney. That's when she called us with the unimaginable. You say, oh, the birds came in my house. They're like, okay, well, not we we lost count after 800. So, you know, it's it's just, it's unbelievable. Turns out the birds are just migrating, looking for a new home. This certainly is not it. And Carrie wants them to get the flock out.
0: I I guess I I appreciate the restraint as far as bird puns go in this piece as a whole. um, This one feels a little forced. I know forced bird puns sort of my thing.
1: I'm okay with the birds, but I don't want a bird ever. (laughs) Jennifer McGraw, News
0: Nation. This whole thing is sort of framed like a horror story, which, I don't know, I guess fear of birds is a thing. They're kind of leaning into that. But I wish Jennifer McGraw, News Nation, hadn't really gone so far down that route. It seems to me to be like a a good opportunity to talk about swift towers, aerial insect conservation. but. I I don't know. I have long since given up on local TV covering any sort of human-bird interaction in a manner other than uh, whimsical or sensational. And I guess this is the second. But that wasn't all. We have more Birds in the News. Birds in the News. Birds in the News. Birds in the News. news. Unwelcome Birds is something of a theme lately, as in this story from... Hatchapi, California.
1: Seeing a California condor is a pretty rare sight. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says there are only about 160 left in the Southern and Central California wild.
0: I should pause to point out here that in the video, it is showing you know lovely footage of a uh, turkey vulture.
1: So when Cinda Mickles returned to her home to find about 15 to 20 camped out, she was shocked. And the railing was filled with about six condors. Mickels is used to elk and other wildlife passing through her yard, but the condors haven't been the nicest house guests. They pretty well trashed my deck. They made a mess of things.
0: Look, given what we've done to condors in the last 150 years, we're sort of getting off easy here. I'm sorry. Cinda Mickles has had to take the brunt, but we sort of had it coming.
1: The condors, which are part of the vulture family, took over everywhere from the roof to the deck. And because of their protected status, there isn't much Mickles can do. I shooed them away, which I'm allowed to do because they're an endangered species. But how do you get rid of a 25 pound, nine and a half foot wingspan
0: bird? poaching and lead mostly, but that's taking things to a dark place. I'm sorry. Moving
1: on. In the 1980s, the California condor almost went extinct. The remaining birds were captured and brought to zoo breeding programs to increase the population. They've been reintroduced to the wild, but many are still tagged for tracking. As for Cinda Mickle's uninvited house guests, they
0: leave when they want to.
1: For Inside Edition Digital, I'm TC Newman.
0: Kudos to Cindy for being pretty good humored about the whole thing. That's far more than we can ask about most people who are suddenly inundated with a dozen messy, federally endangered species. Uh, I suppose that's what she gets for living in a condominium. See, that's how you do it. You can have that one inside edition. That's a freebie. On the show today, we welcome back birding editor Ted Floyd for another round of bird chat for bird chat's sake. This time we're calling it Random Birds. What happens when you combine two birders, a list of species, and a random number generator. All that after this week's rarebirds. This is your rarebird focus for the first week of May 2021. Two first records to note this week, both, interestingly enough, representing the same species Limpkin. That bizarre wading bird that splits the difference between rail and crane has been on the short list of likely Texas Next records for quite a while now, given that they are nesting next door in Louisiana. And this week, one was finally discovered at Brazos Bend State Park, just south of Houston. Searchers for that first bird soon found a second one. So when limpkins come, they come in bunches. There was also some talk about another limpkin reported at a private home in Hot Springs, Arkansas. This would represent a first record for that state as well. And there have already been a number of limpkins seen this spring in that area from Oklahoma, a second there, and Memphis, Tennessee, a state fourth, as best as I can determine. The expansion of this species in recent years has been really wild. They are now regular in Georgia, Alabama, and South Carolina, where in the past they were definitively not A warming climate could be playing a role, but the more likely recent cause is the expansion of large non-native apple snails in Florida, which has contributed to population explosions in species that eat them. Not only limpkin, but also snail kite, which is seeing more modest population growth in recent years and showing up in Georgia and South Carolina. In any case, birders in states like Missouri, Kentucky, and West Virginia should be checking those sloughs, the back ends of reservoirs looking for their first limpkins, too. I would bet that they are out there. That's all I got this week, but you can get up to speed on all the rarity news in the ABA area by checking out the ABA's rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org. You can also join our rarity sharing Facebook group, ABA Rare Bird Alert, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. I'm joined once again by my ABA colleague, Ted Floyd, the person I turn to when I need an interview on short notice. (laughs) And if the response to our last eBird conversation is any indication, uh, it's a fan favorite too. So hello again, Ted.
2: Hello, Nate. Thanks for having me.
0: So we've decided to do something a little bit different today. I I suppose we could have done the eBird thing again, (laughs) but the change in two months probably wouldn't be quite dramatic enough to pull that off. Though I did go birding at a uh, city park here in Greensboro this morning that has a reputation as a spring hotspot, spot and I had a really nice morning good um i assume things are getting pretty fun where you are too
2: spring comes to colorado a lot later than it does to north carolina yeah, I so. so i got my first of year yellow warbler just yesterday for example so and, did i but oh, okay.
0: uh, they've been around i just haven't run across yeah
2: <laughs> but yeah we're still kind of in the uh like orange crowned yellow rumped and you know, just beginning to get the first yellows and common yellow throats right now. So it's, it's a little bit early for us. Yeah. I
0: had, I had double digits and warblers today and including yellow rump. So there's a few Mm. myrtle warblers still hanging around here, but uh, they, I mean, even three or four days ago I had double digits today. I had like four. So Mm. they're, they're, they're clearing out for sure. Um, So I'll explain what we're doing here today. We're we're essentially talking about random birds. In fact, that's the name of the title, random birds. And uh, what I have done is I have compared the lists of Colorado and North Carolina, where Ted and I live respectively. And I have pulled out all the species on those lists that are the same, all the common species between Colorado and North Carolina. Um, Ted, do you have any idea
2: how many species there might be? that's it yeah. put, put me on the spot right away there this reminds <laughs> yeah, me of it. our yeah let's go for it. Yeah. it reminds me of our uh, episode in Harlingen a few years back <laughs> but yeah I, I don't know i am guessing it's a, it's a high number it's 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 got to be into the hundreds um, i'll just throw out a number for you 299 yeah, it's actually more than that. Okay, it's, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I was going to say two hundred and fifty, and I was thinking it's going to be more than that. But I already said the number two, so that's why. So, so, so I, I'm gonna. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking. I was, I was thinking it's gonna be like probably well up to three hundred or maybe. Yeah, so. so
0: Colorado has just over five hundred birds on its state list. North Carolina has just under five hundred, so we're pretty close. Um, but we share three hundred and eighty five. Yeah, thank of you. those species. Right, and yeah. of course, a lot of those
2: shared birds are uh, very rare in one state or the other. Correct.
0: There's yeah. a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. but there, you know, North Carolina does very well with tube noses, <laughs> and, and w- uh, you know, Colorado doesn't do nearly as well with tube noses, and uh, but you do have his beat on corvids and and chickens.
2: I should bites. note that Wyoming, strangely enough, does better with uh, tube noses than Colorado does.
0: Uh, oh yeah doesn't doesn't Wyoming have like streaked Street shearwater? Streaked shearwater. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and one of the one of the weird frigate
2: birds. It's Colorado, um, it. a lesser frigate bird. Hmm. Lesser. That's the one. Yeah.
0: yeah. Cool. So, um, what I've done is I've taken all those 385 birds. I have assigned them a number, uh, on an Excel spreadsheet and, uh, we're just going to use a random number generator to pick a number between one and 385 that I'll assign to a bird. And we'll talk about that bird until we, uh, until we run out of time. I think that we'll be able to fill some, fill some air with that. Does that sound good to you?
2: It sounds as, as good as it gets. I guess yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> all all right.
0: right. So, um, let, let's, get started. I'm going I'm to hit the the Google random number generator all right. and, uh, three wow okay that's pretty random and that is uh snow goose uh-huh. so oh yeah so I, I should also say you know we we can talk about these birds it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh story in your state it can be anywhere in fact some with some vagrants you may, it may need to be um but yeah so we'll, we'll just chat about this bird snow goose what are your thoughts about snow geese and well, um, where do you see them? What 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 do you do? So
2: that changes every year as the yeah. snow goose becomes uh, more and more sort of a super abundant in Colorado, especially in the eastern part of the mm, state. Mm-hmm. But uh, just as a, a little tale here, I've been involved for a very long time in a um, annual event called the High Plains Snow Goose Festival, and uh, when it started out uh, close to twenty years ago you Know snow goose was kind of a good bird that people wanted to go and see mm-hmm. on migration, and uh, the species has become so abundant in the yeah. eastern part of the state that that snow goose festival has sort of uh, expanded to become other uh things than just uh the snow goose. So it's a, a bird that's um drastically increasing in number during the winter months here in Colorado.
0: Yeah, we we actually have quite. Big winter flocks of snow geese in North Carolina as well um, in the eastern part of the state, in the Albemarle Peninsula, uh, particularly at a wildlife refuge called Picosin Lakes Wildlife Refuge, which is kind of a, uh, I, it's one of those, when you think of a wildlife refuge with a nice wildlife drive and maybe a little uh, office there at the at the entrance that mm-hmm. you can talk to a wildlife volunteer or a, or a, it doesn't have any of that. Like you're mm-hmm. just kind of randomly driving on dirt roads all of a sudden when you pull out of uh, Plymouth, North Carolina. Yeah, we have this huge flock of of snow geese that kind of wanders around the ag fields during the day and then comes and and roosts at this really big lake in the middle of the the Pocosan Lake in the middle of the refuge in the evenings. And and frequently, people uh, follow it around. Uh, I've seen it at a distance. I have not seen it up close. Some birders have been really fortunate enough to kind of pull down this road and just see the the geese coming in in the evenings in in massive numbers. And uh, what they typically do is they look for the kind of unusual geese for the eastern U.S., so things like... Like Ross's Goose and, and Cackling Goose, those are the two that uh, people really want to find.
2: Yep, and we look for your brants in those flocks. <laughs> oh, yeah. As well. Although, actually, we're probably more likely on the whole to get black brants, the, the Pacific brant, than the, um, than the Atlantic brant, although they'll hmm. both certainly have here. I, I will say that it's, your experience with snow geese in um, North Carolina and mine in Colorado are very, uh, almost sort of suspiciously convergent. The, 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 <laughs> although, I don't know the names of the places you just described. That's, that's yeah. so... Sounds like the experience of looking for snow geese in uh, in Colorado. I'm, I'm guessing yeah. that that theme is not going to hold up for very long. But uh, <laughs> Maybe but not. So, so but so far, yeah, I'd say that um, the experience of looking for geese, for snow geese, in in Colorado and Wyoming is uh, eerily convergent.
0: You, you would think that a flock of like sixty thousand snow geese would be easy to find, but it's it's amazing how how they can hide on a landscape like that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I have a quick story about that. So uh, on one of the the Snow Goose Festival field trips once, we thought we had found the flock. There was Mm -hmm. just a a huge ag field full of um, white things out in the field and also white things flying around. They were decoys, many hundreds of decoys, including, I don't know if you, you've seen these, but um, decoys in flight. So they're sort of like, um, they're on strings. And some of them are even uh, mechanical uh, because, you know, birds in flight are especially, I guess, alluring to, I'm uh, oh, sorry, robots yeah. in flight. Or yeah. not robots, but, you know, they're, Drones they're, 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 they're toys. I mean, they're they're connected by wire. Right, right. Although yeah. some of them may be mechanical. I'm, I'm not sure huh. about that. But uh, yeah, we thought we had the bird and we just had a, uh, an entire ag field full of decoys
0: huh yeah i've seen those i've seen those um decoys where they're like the, the they stick them in the ground and like the neck is like a hard plastic thing but the body is like a. it can flap like, yeah. yeah it's like yeah. a like a windsock or something mm-hmm. and the wind goes in it and it kind of wobbles around and
2: i guess to a goose it looks close enough i guess like, so although there were no ge- th- there were no yeah to a birder i'm not so sure but <laughs> to a bird because there were no yeah. snow <laughs> geese anywhere no, there you go. no real snow geese anywhere yeah, to i be always around. wonder
0: whether or not those really work but mm-hmm. they work well enough i suppose all right, should we move on to another bird? Yep, bring it on. All right, so random number generator, what have you got for us? 321.
2: Oh, so we're at the end of the checklist. Now. Yeah, so
0: these are in taxonomic order so you can yep. kind of mm-hmm. scrolling down. <laughs> that is a uh, bobolink. Oh. well, yeah. It's a good time of year to talk about bobolinks.
2: Yeah, so uh, bobolinks are sort of near the limit of their convoluted complicated uh, breeding range in in colorado although they do sneak um far to our west as you go farther north of colorado the bobolink is a um a bird that is basically sort of most familiar to birders in colorado in uh, wet hay meadows especially the mm-hmm. front range metro region up where i live in boulder county is a superb place but when i think of uh, bobolinks in in colorado though, i actually think of um the colorado river drainage the northwestern part mm-hmm. of the state so the upper area up around um Steamboat Springs in the uh, Yampa Valley, uh, which does have you know, a, a, actually a fair bit of agriculture and a lot of wet hay fields, is a marvelous place to look for bobolinks. It's just so strange to be in a very, very western environment. I mean, most of the rest yeah. of the birds there are so western, yeah. and yet they're bobolinks breeding there. That's just that's really cool to me. Yeah. So it has a spotty distribution in uh, in Colorado, and they get back late, you know, sort of around May fifteenth. They leave pretty early, and needless to say, they they're strictly summer only. There's never any. We don't get them before May 1st. We certainly don't get them after, about yeah. the beginning of September. Hmm.
0: Uh, this is the second bird in a row for which our experience is finally yeah. actually quite similar. <laughs> yeah. I want a vagrant.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Well, so, you know, Bobolink, uh, yeah, this is the time of year where, at least in my county, like I've got a few spots, there's like an organic farm uh, up in the northwest part of the county where they will, you know, they, they don't use any pesticides or anything. So the clover grows really high and thick. Uh, these hay fields, these kind of wet hay fields and frequently you just drive around and you look for the big, weird black and white, you know, that unique kind of yeah. skunk skunk pattern uh, popping up out and flying back in and you just pull over and hopefully you can get some. Um, it's been like that here in North Carolina. It's where I live here in Guilford County uh, when I lived in the Triangle further east we used to go to the North Carolina State University, uh, at, you know, experimental farm, and it was the same sort of thing and the same sort of place and the same sort of experience. Back when I grew up in Missouri, um, it was the same experience. In early May, you'd go out to these hayfields, these wet hayfields, and hopefully you'd find bobolinks frequently and in, in with along with dick Sissel, uh, grasshopper sparrow. Those kind of three species are kind of inextricably linked in <laughs> my mind and experience.
2: Just one comment I'll make, sort of on a conservation note about the bobolink, is uh, that we have really come to appreciate in the past, just really the past ten or fifteen years here, the importance of these uh, staging grounds after mm-hmm. the breeding season is over. So uh, the birds are done nesting, but they still need to, you know, get ready to migrate. They you know, they had that really weird. Uh, two complete molts per year and of course the fall molt and they they have to molt their feathers when they're almost flightless not quite but they are very disinclined to fly mm-hmm. and uh, we've really been working it's been a bit of a challenge to, you know, with uh, uh you know municipalities that are charged with protecting grasslands and also with a uh, private interest to uh, delay mowing way past the time when the birds actually fledge because the adults and for that matter the juveniles are really quite vulnerable uh, even after everybody's left the nest
0: hmm. oh, that's interesting um, we do have some nesting bobolinks here in North Carolina up in the, uh, up in the mountains, up on the, so at the tops of the Appalachians and on some of the mountains, we, they're like, there are no trees and we call them balds. Mm-hmm, yep. um, it's kind of a very unique, uh, you, you grew up in Pittsburgh in Western Pennsylvania, are yep. probably pretty familiar with this, this kind of weird habitat. Um, so they nest up there, but they don't want, they won't nest down in the lowlands. Got it. Yep. yep. Yeah.
2: Should we do a next another yep, one? let's do another. All right,
0: one. yeah, keep it going. We can
2: do this all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> could, yeah, so we get through all of them. Right. All right,
0: random number generator. Uh, it went to three again. We're gonna wow ninety eight. Well, well, boy,
2: now that, that's a probability uh, question <laughs> right. right there. Yeah, what's the odds of coming right back to the second the second uh, random number? Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so ninety eight is our number. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. So and uh, the species is red knot.
2: Uh, okay so now we've got a, a probably a difference between <laughs> our yeah i imagine our experiences because, are a little different uh the red knot is um probably not even annual in in, in colorado um it's not accidental but let, let, let's call it casual i've never seen it in in, in colorado hmm. it's a um it's a great bird if somebody finds a red knot a lot of people are going to be out looking for it and um yeah, There are a handful of records. I, again, I wouldn't call it accidental, but a, a, it's a bird of casual occurrence here. Needless to say, they're uh, seen on migration only because they uh, mm-hmm. winter far to the south and they breed uh, far to the north. So I, I could be wrong here, but I'm guessing that probably all the sightings are May into early June. There might be some fall records, but I'm guessing that that's a cluster in the um, in the spring.
0: Do you know what subspecies you get in Colorado? It's the Pacific one, right?
2: Yeah. So, but uh, well, you guys get Rufa, I think. Yeah. And yeah, uh, no, no, what, not... whatever the one isn't the one that isn't Rufa yeah, <laughs> is probably yeah, the yeah. one that we get. Although, I, you know, I, I don't know about that. Those birds fly, you know, thousands of miles, and I can't mm-hmm. say that since they are essentially vagrants. Well, actually, they are definitely vagrants in Colorado. Um, I don't really know where they're coming from.
0: Yeah, I see them mostly here in the uh, in the winter. So I see the, like the winter plumage, the gray ones, um, and they're sort of uncommon. Like I could I could miss it. In a given year like mm. I, it's not a bird I'm guaranteed to see if I spend any time on the coast mm. uh, but frequently you might you if you if you spend enough time you'll probably encounter one yep. um, I, I live far enough away from the coast that I don't I don't go all, all that often and mm-hmm. so uh, like it's easy for me to miss but you know the more time more you know the more reps I guess yep. uh, that you spend out there in the right habitat you'll find them um, I I have not seen a red knot in the striking red, breeding plumage i've only ever seen them in the in that kind of gray streaky very subdued plumage so it's not bad for me i guess (laughs) (laughs) all right random number generator here we go 381
2: oh we're back at the end yeah Mm -hmm. away at the end actually you said was it 385 was the total
0: 385 is the total oh this is good uh blue grosbeak because we were just talking yeah. about blue grosbeaks before we started recording, because uh, Ryan Mendelbaum, who uh, is a frequent guest on the, you know, this month in birding panel, uh, posted on Twitter that he had had all, he had had three grosbeaks, um, blue grosbeak, rosebreasted grosbeak, and evening grosbeak in the same tree on the morning when I thought that was really cool, yeah. if for no other reason, because blue grosbeak is uh, not a bird I frequently see in a tree. I mean, there's a lot of cool things about that sighting. Yeah. Um, and we, maybe we can talk about that. But uh, yeah, blue grosbeak is uh, a summering breeding bird here where I live. I, I saw my first one of the year actually just yesterday. So this is very timely.
2: Yeah. So blue grosbeak has a bizarre distribution in Colorado, but I'm not talking about the spatial distribution. I'm talking about the the temporal distribution. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're neotropical migrants and we had them only in the summer months. They get back quite late, you know, sort of mid-May. And, yeah, you know, they kind of hang around for a while. And then there's... Um, this sort of sudden appearance of blue ghost beaks in places where they hadn't been present, you know, until like hmm. mid July or sometimes even early August. If you go out on a uh, sort of a, a hazy September morning when everything's sort of quiet, and maybe there's some shorebirds around, you know, like the, the one passerine that's singing is the blue ghost beak. Hmm. So they seem to undergo kind of the way that the sedge wren more famously does this uh, substantial a midsummer movement, uh, you know, locally, I mean, or on a, or sorry, on a regional basis, you know, it might involve a flights of a hundred miles or so uh, to new breeding grounds. And at my local patch, for example, I'd have to look at this to make sure of it, but I don't think I've ever had one until about, you know, Independence Day or sometimes hmm. maybe, maybe even later. Wow. And then they're singing and we see young birds, you know, quite late into the season. So there's a lot of moving around uh, during the summer months uh, you know, on a statewide basis. If you looked at the temporal distribution, you would just say, oh, well, they're here from May into September. But if you kind of get down to a county by county basis, there's intriguing uh movement uh, throughout the uh the season another thing i'll just comment on with the blue ghost because i think this is a difference between west and east is that it's really a, a riparian species hmm. out here you can see them in old fields but by and large they're uh, really associated with um, streams
0: oh huh. well that's interesting i usually just i usually see them in the similar sort of places that i find bobolinks actually um or or nearby near enough by you know those kind of pastures hay fields with especially if they've got like a shrubby edge with uh you know brambles and mm-hmm. and um sweet gum like young sweet gum um that's usually where i'll find a uh, blue grosbeaks yesterday when i saw my first one of the year it was uh so there's this this trail i, I bird sometimes that actually runs behind a shopping center and so it goes behind like a, a target and a mexican restaurant mm-hmm. and uh, like one of those trampoline places and so i walk back behind it and at the beginning of it near a retention pond is this kind of hillside that has a ton of uh, big purple thistles mm. and it was hanging out on this hillside uh, i don't know if it's going to nest there but it was seemingly a pretty good place i don't think the you know the field is big enough but mm. it was a pretty good place they was it was eating the thistles and, and it wasn't mm. singing but it was
2: calling quite a bit yeah in light of what you uh you, you said I, I actually need to modify my colorado comment just a bit um about about bobolinks. so uh, the bobolinks yeah. are very um sort of uh Locally distributed across Colorado, the blue ghost beaks are much more widely distributed. Mm, so, yeah, well, uh, where we have bobolinks, because those tend to be wet places, yeah, there often yeah. Are, are blue ghost beaks lurking around the outskirts. But uh, there are all sorts of places, for example, the uh, very dry canyon country of southeastern Colorado, where uh, no self respecting bobolink would ever be oh, found, right. maybe a flyover, a nocturnal yeah. migration. Uh, but the um, the creeks and rivers in those canyons uh, are loaded with blue ghost beaks, and uh, certainly no bobolinks at all.
0: Yeah, I see blue grosbeaks on my breeding bird surveys that I run uh, in the area as well, which tend to uh, go through the same sort of habitat, which is, you know, that's kind of fields, overgrown pasture type of places. And um, yeah, you know, that's, that's blue grosbeaks. That's where they are. And I expect to, expect to hear that kind of rambly, warbly song uh, whenever I pull over in those places. All right. Should we trust Google again?
2: Let's do another random number here. All right, here we go.
0: Forty nine. All right, back at the top. Back at the top. It's really
2: uh, working Bouncing my scrolling around, finger. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Western
2: grebe. <laughs> well, I'm sure we have a lot more western grebes in Colorado than you do yeah. in North Carolina. Uh It's yeah. a uh, it's a common uh, species statewide in in the summer months. Um, we actually get them year round, although they they get pretty scarce in the winter. They need to be at big open reservoirs sort of the farther south and east you go uh the better but as long as there's open water with fish you can find western grebes they uh mass in uh, huge numbers into the four digits in uh, late summer so um some of the favored reservoirs in the in, in my area in the front range metro region sort of august into september with a lot of late breeders in there as well the tricky thing for us in colorado is going to be of course western versus clarks yeah. uh, which is a distributional conundrum for sure but yeah, i would say that the uh the western grebe is a uh, welcome, widespread, and easily found bird in um, Colorado. If I were to open up the window and take the headphones off, I probably could hear um, western grebes screeching at the pond at the bottom of the wow. street here. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, western grebe is actually one of the the first bird that we've we've talked about that I have actually seen in both North Carolina <laughs> and in Colorado. Um, back when the ABA was in Colorado Springs. We did that. You may remember this. We did that uh, board and staff retreat in the springs. um, I don't remember.
2: Oh, yeah. We must have gone out to Big Johnson Reservoir. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, there were some Western Grebes hanging out there along with my Lifer Clark's Grebe. So I got them side by side. And funnily enough, um, I've seen Western Grebe once in North Carolina and it is in my home county, but it was before (laughs) I lived here. Uh, There was a a pair of Western Grebe. Well, I'll, I'll. Expound on that in a second, but there was at least one pure Western grebe at a local reservoir, and I drove out from uh, from Chapel Hill uh, to to see it. But it was with a bird that some people call the Clark's grebe, oh, some people yeah. call the Western grebe. It's sort of uh, there's still a bit of a conundrum in eBird still. Uh, I think probably Western slash Clark's was probably the safer bet. Um, how do you tell those birds? How many of those kind of intergrade birds do you see in Colorado?
2: Uh, they're they're common. Uh, uh, I'd say I have a lot of spuzz on a, on yeah. eBird list. The western, in most places, outnumbers or so almost completely excludes Clark. So western mm-hmm. is the in general the more frequently encountered of the birds. Um, I would say that there's nothing about the distribution of the uh, sorry about the, uh, the the differences between those birds um, you know, that I have sort of particular insight to add into. The, the bill color is a really good mark throughout mm. the year. I find that. Clark's grebes are almost always that kind of yellow to almost kind of carrot, orange, yellow, really, really bright uh, at all times of the year. And that Western is always sort of that dull yellow green. Hmm. And even in winter when the, two, yeah, when, when, when the two, you know, when the two birds sort of turn to mush plumage wise, they keep yes. that bill color hmm. difference. Um, you know, the, the classic field mark about the, the, uh, the black eye against the white or black face, you know, that's good most of the time, but watch out for birds um, that are, you know, going from, you know, that are that are molt, for example, and watch out for birds that just uh fluff up their feathers. We have a great series of mm-hmm. photos from last year of a bird that's definitely the same bird. Images, you know, just a uh, seconds apart, and by golly, it looks like a Clark's in one and a Western and the other, and it's just I, um. I think you, that it, was sort of the consensus with this bird. Yeah. This mystery bird is yeah.
0: like some of the photos that look very much like Clark's, and some of the photos are like, no, nah, there's no way. Yeah. Um, uh, the other
2: thing I'll, I'll mention, you probably don't get this too often in North Carolina with vagrants, but um, they they sound different. That so-called mm. advertising call is uh powerfully two syllable in um in Western and sort of a slurred one syllable in Clarks. And you can get birds that give sort of, you know, tweener notes sometimes, but in general that far carrying, highly distinctive what we call the advertising call Creek creek in the Western just Creek in the um in the Clarks is a, a pretty good distinction.
0: Yeah. It's one of those birds that's actually become a bit more regular in the east and i don't know whether that is you know people are looking for it more or they're more open to the possibility of seeing it or maybe there's just more birders but it feels like the last couple years at least here in north carolina people have found western graves particularly on the coast they tend to be offshore um but the the problem being with that is that everything is so dynamic offshore that that they tend not to stick around Ah. you might get one and then the next day it's who knows 40 miles away so with the drift with the drift (laughs) All right, Shall we do one more?
2: Oh, let's do 10 more. 10 <laughs> <That's> more. <good. laughs> I can you get one. a bunch, and That's then right. uh,
0: I'll, I'll parse them out. Okay. All right, so uh, a random number generator. 81.
2: Okay. Sandhill crane. Uh, there's a lot to say about sandhill cranes in Colorado yeah. as as well. Um, it, we have sandhill cranes through the year here. The uh, If this really is our last bird, uh, there's just so much to say about the, the sandhill <laughs> crane. But yeah, the... Uh, the distribution of the bird in, in space and time and also um in terms of um uh, i hate to say so, so subspecies are so tricky in, in, in san dieu grange but population differences mm-hmm. are really striking so i guess the two major phenomena are the uh, spring staging of birds on the west slope and then this dramatic uh, fall migration over the um i-25 corridor you know, across denver and um uh, and colorado springs so uh, we get the birds in the san luis valley of the south central part of colorado that are, that are famously winter at bosque del apache national wildlife refuge just due south in new mexico and they um uh, stage in the tens of thousands low tens of thousands in the san luis valley in um early well now in sort of fe- february into early to mid-march and then they just dis- disperse uh across the northwestern uh, united states to breed so those are the uh, basically the greater sandhill cranes that's a spring and summer phenomenon uh, then we get the um migration of lesser sandhill cranes over the uh, the big cities um you know D- denver B- um, pueblo colorado springs boulder fort collins um in October, and uh, October into, no, into early November. And these are these incredible flights often lasting a day or two of birds that rarely land. They, they just, they overfly the state. And these birds have come from tremendous uh, distances to, far to the north and west. And they're sort of on, by the time they're in Colorado, they're like, they're on final approach to their, to their wintering grounds. And they just don't mess around with us at all. And it's just so stirring to be out on a typically sort of gray and rainy, sometimes even snowy day in late October. And if you're out, you know, for hours to see thousands of these cranes high overhead, and they just have a penchant for flying like right over I-25 in downtown Denver during the Friday rush hour mm-hmm. or something like that. So, uh, really, two very different Sandhill Crane stories for us in Colorado.
0: Yeah, they are. They are scattered and uh, frequently mostly solitary in in North Carolina, which is funny because just over the border in Tennessee. They are in groups uh, in in groups in flocks of the thousands at like Mm. Hiawassee National Wildlife Refuge, but they don't they don't come over here. Um, I've I've seen them here and there on the coastal plain in the winter. I have them a pair of them hung out on the uh, mudflats of a local reservoir in my home county Mm. a few years ago, so I got to see. Uh, those birds uh, seemingly very out of place. Uh, there was one that I recall a couple of years ago in North Carolina that um, spent the winter in the vicinity of a uh, Bojangles parking lot. <laughs> Not familiar with Bojangles. It's a uh, a chicken, fried chicken place. Yep. And uh, yeah, basically acting like a giant house sparrow, um, picking up <laughs> to the extent that people were concerned about its well-being, uh, but it seemed to manage Managed pretty well, but yeah, nothing, nothing in the big flocks. I've never, I've not seen that though. Um, I would like to see those big flocks in the central flyway, um, Kansas, Nebraska, especially. I, it's not an experience I have, I've seen. Have you, have you been to the, that part of the country and seen those massive yeah. kind of famous um, in terms of
2: yeah, yeah, so the Kearney, Nebraska come, yeah, comes yeah. to mind in terms of the, and by the way, just, uh, just to be clear, that's a uh, sort of mid-March, uh, sort of third week of March mm-hmm. phenomenon in terms of the sheer volume of birds. It's it's one of the great spectacles on earth. Um, I'm a Colorado partisan, so I will <laughs> I, I will say that the uh, sort of the side benefits of watching the crane migration in um, the the mountain valleys in, in Colorado are uh, are great indeed. The uh, the area that I mentioned, the San Luis Valley, is ringed with uh, a snow capped fourteen thousand foot summits. Uh, you can sort of do a three sixty and just see a uh, fourteen thousand foot summits, you know, northeast, west, and south of you, and then you know, these birds are moving through at the same time as. Um, mountain bluebirds and cinnamon teal and you know, their long-eared owls and prairie falcons and golden eagles uh, all about so um it's not as many birds but it's quite spectacular but yeah just for that phenomenon it's just you know well sometimes you know a half million cranes uh, you yeah. know not necessarily in view all at once but sort of generally accounted for uh, especially that phenomenon uh, there in sort of um well, pretty much south central to sort of uh, southeast central um nebraska can't be beat
0: I think people underappreciate how uh, how broad their breeding range is too. A lot of people don't know that they they head all the way over into East Asia. When yeah, breed, so a, yeah, sort uh, of one of
2: those trivia questions. But you know, what cool. what are the handful of birds that sort of routinely cross um, the Bering Strait? Um, you know, so flying uh, uh, east, sorry, east and west get mixed up there. I realize, but you know, in in, in, a, in a westward vector, what mm. <laughs> winding up over in the uh, the Russian Far East, and uh, so pectoral sandpiper a gray cheeked thrush, thrush and and uh, sandhill crane, <laughs> and uh, you know the sandhill sort of cranes. the
0: opposite of those uh, East Asian birds that come over into Alaska, like blue yeah. throats and white wagtail.
2: Yeah, so, something I've never seen, but I would love to. Would be sort of you know I don't know, like it's sort of a fantasy of mine to be you know in the Bering Strait. You know, during migration, you know, with um, yeah, as you said, like blue throats, you know, weed ears, um, eastern yellow wagtails, you know, going um, one way, and then you know, gray cheeked thrushes and pectoral <laughs> sandpipers going the other way, and it, it must happen. I mean, they, they actually cross paths, I assume, at the same time on yeah. migration, with the birds going in completely opposite directions.
0: You know, in the west coast of uh, the ABA area, there's a big, you know, people love Asian. Asian songbirds that come over and, as vagrants. Does that sort of phenomenon happen on the uh, other side of the Pacific as well? Do, uh, do you... I, I, yeah. I, I feel I'm completely ignorant of like, uh, you know, Korean and Japanese, Chinese birding culture.
2: Yeah, you mentioned Korea. So um, I haven't been there in, in a while, but um, I was there in uh, the sort of early winter, you know, late late fall. It was uh, right around Halloween mm-hmm. and into early November. And, you know, I, I was kind of keen on seeing... <laughs> you know asian birds and the, the folks i was with were really really keen on seeing uh, a vagrants from um uh, from from north america and i remember going on i, I, I can't remember the goose but i, I something really common i would say it was a snow goose and i might have that wrong but i thought I can't believe here i am in korea <laughs> and i'm going on a, a twitch for it, it, it wasn't even a uh, particularly uncommon north american birds so yeah there's very much uh interest in um, trying to find vagrants from from north america i don't think that the phenomenon is as pronounced uh Mm -hmm. in east asia but certainly um there are occurrences of such birds in east asia
0: that reminds me of the time that i uh helped out on an aba trip in on saint paul island in the privilofs and the best bird we had that uh that trip
2: was a wood thrush yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you, you, you're thinking it should be a dusky thrush or something I know, uh, like, like, yeah, like that. You travel yeah. all
0: this way to see a bird that I can hear in my
2: backyard. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But
0: uh, you know, but honestly, like from a from a vagrancy perspective, the like how does a wood thrush get to St. Paul Island? That's a pretty mind boggling uh, mind boggling route. But uh, you know, even so, that's not why you, not why we go to St. Paul Island. <laughs> nope. Yep. The same. The 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 local guides were very excited.
2: Cool. Hey, uh, back real quickly. I, I know we're, we sort of got into wood thrushes somehow, but um, to uh, to sandhill <laughs> cranes. I don't think that's
0: on the list. Actually. <laughs> I don't think there's a wood thrush record in Colorado.
2: Oh no, we we we. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh. oh yeah, we've got it all. Yeah. In fact, uh, I. I just scroll I, down. Yeah. <laughs> It better be no. It's, it's definitely on the list. It's it's probably annual in Colorado. Um, so that makes that three eighty six. Yeah, I, I, I heard one is that when I was okay. making the list. I heard one singing <laughs> beautifully in a, a Boulder County canyon in a, a rainstorm oh, quite some time ago. So yeah, I think they're they're annual in in Colorado. Oh, all right, oh, well. Oh, no. yeah, just real quickly the... back back to the to grains though. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned in the bird beforehand the Western Grieve that sightings are on the increase in North Carolina. I, I assume that refers to the uh, or pertains to the. Uh, sandhill crane as well the, the, the population of sandhill cranes are on the increase and my understanding is that they're especially increasing uh in the yeah, east is that correct i would say
0: so i would hmm? say that um you know it's an annual bird but you know it's it's one of those birds that's like kind of hard to pin down where they're going to be like there's no place where you can okay. like find one that's where they're congregating or anything like uh right. like in Hiawassee or or in hmm. some parts in florida like they're they're just they're just there they're just randomly scattered across the landscape it's like someone takes a handful of sandhill cranes and a map and just tosses them (laughs) on there and that's that's where they are like you never know where they're gonna be um yeah but i i I would say that it's probably true that there are more of them every year but um you know it's very much a crapshoot whether whether or not you'll encounter one got it in a given year all right do you want to do one more or shall we um
2: I'm having fun. I, we okay, all right. That. We'll do one.
0: We'll do one more. We'll do one all more. Right. All right. Random number generator. One last bird. Three hundred and fifty-two.
2: Back at the end.
0: Back at the end. It is hooded warbler. Oh, oh good. Another good
2: one. A warbler. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, <laughs> I, well, I, so I'm gonna. Get, I'll let you talk about North Carolina in a moment. But that's got to be an incredibly common. It's and one widespread. of our <laughs> more
0: common yeah. breeding birds. Anytime you are in some. You know, broadleaf forest anywhere uh, this time of year, you will hear when I was out this morning and I heard one like as soon as I stepped out of the car, I went birding at another site Uh, yesterday, a different place. uh, I heard one at the end of my walk that was doing like an almost perfect magnolia warbler song that switched to hooded warbler once I really started looking for it. And I already put magnolia warbler on my Hmm. bird checkbox head and wipe it off. But um, yeah, hooded warbler. um, But you know, one of those birds I never get tired of seeing um, even though I don't see it as often. Usually it's a herd bird on my list because their song is so strident and and loud. Um, But anytime I get to, I get to see it is, is great. It's yeah, pretty, pretty common across, across the entire state.
2: Yeah. So hooded warbler in Colorado is a, it's a good bird, for want of a better word. It's certainly annual. If you're doing a, a big year, you'll probably even find one or two on your mm. own. Um, it's, it's an eastern vagrant, but it's one of our more frequently detected eastern vagrants. One thing that I think um, may come as a surprise to folks who uh, aren't in Colorado or in places like, say, Nevada or California, that get lots of uh, hooded warbirds, um, I shouldn't say on migration, but as vagrants too, is how late you find them. So hmm. I don't recall offhand Ever having seen or heard a Colorado hooded warbler in um, in May? It's it's really in June when they start to pile up in uh, canyons in the right. uh, in the Front Range. So uh, yeah, the bulk of the sightings are going to be uh, sort of in what feels like summer. It may not meteorologically be summer yet, but you know the the leaves are all out and all the breeding birds are back, and uh, yeah, every I shouldn't say every canyon, but, you know, every major drainage seems to have, you know, a, a hooded warbler in there somewhere at some point uh, during the month of June. And then we also get them just as uh, sort of uh, vagrants in the fall hmm. as well. But it's almost more of like a summer bird, early summer bird than a uh, than a fall bird. It's a spectacular bird. It's sufficiently rare that uh, folks will go looking for one if there's near one nearby. But um, it's annual and we must have, um, you know, low double digits of records each year, I would guess. Huh.
0: Yeah, I mean the the leaves are are out when we see them too, but that's because it's the Southeast and the leaves are <laughs> out Here. by early March. Um yeah, that always always low to the ground, almost always, you know, that that really great um I think it was Bill Thompson the uh, third, the late Bill Thompson the third who who did the mnemonic that always sticks with me, uh, which was the red the red t-shirt. Oh that'll work. <laughs> but they uh they're they're one of those Whistly warblers uh, sometimes that can mix things up and always kind of cause me trouble. Um, magnolia warbler, American red start, uh, hooded warbler, chestnut sided always kind of in that, in that same sort of tonal quality to me. I don't know if you can pick out any parsony any difference with those birds, but I, I, I frequently have trouble with them. <laughs> to, to, to me, uh,
2: the, the real kind of uh, sound alikes are hooded and, uh, and magnolia. And mm-hmm. this is a sort of subjective thing to say, but uh, hooded is just sort of this, piercing, ringing, it a really yeah. sort of yeah, solid, really muscular yep. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, song. And Magnolia, to me, just sounds wimpy compared to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, a, to a hooded. But uh, yeah, I certainly get those two um, mixed up, especially as I get farther and farther away in my life from <laughs> the time when I was hearing them r- routinely. So yeah, to me, the uh, the real sound-alikes are going to be hooded and, um, and Magnolia.
0: Mm. All right. Well, that's good. We've got plenty of stuff here. Cool. Um, it, it, we want to leave some birds if we decide to do this again. Yep. Uh, so we've got you oh know, yeah, we got three hundred and you know eighty, 80 to go or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're, we're doing okay. fine. All right, well, okay. uh, Ted, thank you so much for for chatting random
2: birds with yep. me. Um, yeah,
0: we'll, we'll do this again. Sometime. Lots of
2: fun. Yeah, yep. we have many, many more to go. So we'll do it again. <laughs> Great. Okay, thanks, Nate.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. Members get more like our great magazines, discounts to our partners like Video Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and opportunities to travel with us. Now that we're getting back to normal, you can get information at aba.org join. I do want to make some shout outs to Matthew and Victoria Igleski of Hammond, Indiana, Rodney Schmidt of Sierra Vista, Arizona, Jason Hall of Royersford, Pennsylvania, Carolyn Evans of Spartanburg, South Carolina, Gene Olson of Seattle, Washington, Alec Crawford of Toronto, Ontario, Charles Patterson and family of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Michelle Kaiser of Germantown, Maryland, Christopher Atkinson of Smithdale, Mississippi, and Bita Milano and the Milanos of Oakland, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who used to live in South Texas. So, you know, he knows the best way to attract the local bird life to your house is to rent a uh, Choshaleka. Yeah. Techno production is by John Lowry, who was once kicked out of an RV park because scavenging raptors were attracted to his caravan. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who have a timeshare that they split that has a really great winter feeder set up. You can find it on Airbnb. It's advertised as a cozy junkalo. You can find us online at aba.org and on various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I used to live in a little home by a lake would attract uh, a lot of ducks and other water birds, but I was able to flip it and upgrade to a manor house surrounded by scrubby second growth forest and overgrown fields. So I, I went from a cootage to a chateau. Questions, comments, and corrections can come to podcast.av.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Get vaccinated. See you next week.